are, are visiting with us. We've had a long series. I don't know if we're up to about 20th sermon in this series and prosperity. And uh, we've been trying to avoid the extremes that you see on this subject. Uh, one extreme, I think, is seen in many reform circles where people think that finances and houses and lands and all those types of things have no bearing. And the other extreme is to think that uh, we can selfishly use all of these things that the Lord has given and uh, the health and the wealth gospel does not ground it in the word uh, of God as it should. But in any case, there is so much that both New Testament and Old Testament have to say about this. Uh, beginning to read, this is the word of God. Every commandment which I command you today, you must be careful to observe that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land of which the Lord swore to your fathers. And you shall remember that the Lord your God led you all the way these 40 years in the wilderness to humble you and test you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. So he humbled you, allowed you to hunger, fed you with manna which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man shall not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. Your garments did not wear out on you, nor did your foot swell these forty years. You should know in your heart that as a man chastens his son, so the Lord your God chastens you. Therefore you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God to walk in his ways and to fear him. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks of water, of fountains and springs that flow out of valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive oil and honey, a land in which you will eat bread without scarcity, in which you will lack nothing, a land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills you can dig copper. When you have eaten and are full, then you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land which he has given you. Beware that you do not forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments, his judgments, and his statutes, which I command you today, lest when you have eaten and are full and have built beautiful houses and dwell in them, and when your herds and your flocks multiply and your silver and your gold are multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, when your heart is lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage, who led you through that great and terrible wilderness in which were fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty land where there was no water, <coughs> who brought water for you out of the flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna, which your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and that he might test you to do you good in the end. Then you say in your heart, My power and the might of my hand have gained me this wealth. And you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth, that he may establish his covenant, which he swore to your fathers, as it is this day. And then it shall be, if you by any means forget the Lord your God and follow other gods and serve them and worship them, I testify against you this day that you shall surely perish. As the nations which the Lord destroys before you, so you shall perish, because you would not be obedient to the voice of the Lord your God. And all God's people said, Amen. <clears throat> Father God, we submit our hearts to your word at this time, continue to worship you, and rejoice in the uh, word, the promises, and the commands that you give. We love you, and I pray that you would enable me to preach your word faithfully and enable us to be not only hearers but doers of it in christ's name we pray amen you may be seated <coughs> i thought what i'd um, do before i actually uh, dive into 
And you can go ahead and put the, oh yeah, upside down, the first point up, <coughs> not A, but uh, the Roman numeral. And I'm not allowed to wander, am I? I'm going to be so inhibited. I don't know if I'm going to be able to preach. I got a park right in front of here. Is that right? Where is Jeff when you need him? <coughs> I can hold it in my hand. I, I think I may do that. I can't stand the idea of standing still, I don't think, anymore. But I thought I would uh, uh, look at uh, Matthew chapter 25, and you can turn there if you want. You don't need to, because I think you know the story fairly well. <coughs> it's the story about... Uh, Another one, each according to his own ability. He did not have the socialistic impulse, you know, to just be evenly dividing up all of this money between the, the three servants. Uh, he gave them according to their ability. And his attitude toward these different servants is very interesting. Now, let me just give you the story, first of all. The one who had the five talents, uh, he invested it very wisely. He managed to double it, and he got ten talents. And uh, the one with two talents doubled his, and he got four talents. And the one who had one talent, uh, and I, I, I should probably read <coughs> the passage. They, they get uh, real praise uh, from the Lord. Well done, you good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. The one who buried his talent in the ground, he was fearful of um, investing uh, that because he thought he might lose it. And the master said, you should have at least put it in the bank to gain some interest. And he said, if you're not a wise steward of what I'm entrusting to you, I'm just going to remove it from you. And again, a lot of people emphasize the fact because of his poor stewardship, he's not having that. But I want you to notice <coughs> what the master does. The major point that Christ makes is with an increased capacity to handle goods, there's an increased goods that are given. To each of the ones who doubled their money, he says, you have been faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. That's verses 21 and verse 23. So both of them are given an increased stewardship. And uh, yet it's interesting what he does with the, the man with um, uh, the one talent. <coughs> he, he takes the talent away, but instead of giving it to the man with five talents, he gives it to the man with ten talents. And a lot of people say, well, that's not fair. Why didn't he give it to the person with five talents? You know, he has more need of the money than the one with ten. But the point is that this man, even though both had increased the threshold of prosperity that the master could trust them with, the other man still was able to be entrusted with uh, even more. And I think modern society does the exact opposite. It rewards uh, those with welfare who least deserve it, and it punishes those who have done well uh, with uh, their <coughs> with their riches and uh, many people think well the poor people need the money more but that's the exact opposite of the way the the lord thinks and i think we have been so immersed in our society's way of thinking many times we miss out on on the the application that christ gives here uh, instead of a consumer oriented application what he does is he says the person who has been wisely 
using the stewardship trust that I have given to him, that person is uh, going to be prospered with even more. Listen to his anti-socialist conclusion. This is in verse 29. For to everyone who has, more will be given, and he will have abundance. But from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away. Almost sounds like, you know, the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. Well, it's not quite that way because he's saying it's the faithful who are entrusted with more and the unfaithful, no matter what their status, have even more taken away. And to me, this is a tremendous motivation. I want to be wise in the stewardship that the Lord has given to me. I want to handle it to his glory. And I want uh, verse 21 to be true of me where he says, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Now, what today's sermon is going to be about, oh yeah, you could just put up the uh, number four point. Uh, <laughs> what I want to deal with today is uh, point A of number four, how to raise the threshold of prosperity that God can trust us with. And if you turn back to Deuteronomy chapter eight, we're going to pick up at verse 11. And point number one, it says, we must seek God and his purposes do not forget him. Seek God and his purposes. Do not uh, forget him. Surest way that we can be insecure in our wealth is to seek wealth as an end in itself rather than seeking it for the Lord. Verse 11 <clears throat> says, beware. And any time that that word occurs, that beware, it's like there's something that can attack you. You need to be on guard. You need to watch out. Beware that you do not forget the Lord your God. Okay? Forgetting can come on you unexpectedly, and it can even come upon Christians. And uh, this verse is talking about Christians. He's talking about people whom God himself declares to be their God. Okay, so this is not something we can space off and say, okay, that's for unbelievers. He's saying Christians can forget God. They can very easily do so. <clears throat> so the negative side, for every negative, there's a positive, but the negative side, we have to put off the forgetting. The positive side is we need to seek God. <clears throat> and this chapter is very clear that uh, if we do forget, God's not very motivated to let our prosperity continue for very long. So first point, how do we raise the threshold of prosperity that God can trust? Well, don't forget him and seek him with all of your heart. And I think it's worthwhile asking the question, well, how do we forget him? Because we might think we haven't done it, and yet the scripture applies it differently. And the rest of the verse 11 shows one way in which we can do it. There's other ways this chapter mentions, but one way is to neglect God's word. How else are we going to know about his commandments, his judgments, and his statutes? It's to neglect the word of God. Now, if we, <clears throat> if we stop listening to our husband or we stop listening to our wife, I think we're forgetting our spouse. If we stop listening to our children, we're forgetting our children. If we stop listening to God, we are forgetting uh, God. We need to be preparing ourselves uh, by being in the word another way of forgetting is given in verse 14 <clears throat> when your heart is lifted up and and we'll deal with pride in a in a minute uh, but pride leads to forgetting and it's the description of the forgetting that i want to look at here he says verse 14 when your heart is lifted up and you forget the lord your god who brought you out of the land of egypt from the house of bondage who led you through that great and terrible wilderness in which were fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty land where there was no water, who brought water for you out of the flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna, which your fathers did not know. Uh, he's saying it is possible for these Christians 
to forget about the fact that God has marvelously, wonderfully blessed them with provisions in the past and begin to take God for granted. And when we take God for granted, what it means is that God is not uppermost in our minds. He's kind of in the back there, and he comes to the fore during special occasions, like, you know, in the devotions, and uh, when we go to church, we might think, <coughs> hey, I don't forget God. <coughs> I, I go to church every Sunday. I have devotions every Sunday. But God wonders, why is it then that God is not in your thoughts in the business deal, in the bedroom, when you're playing with friends, in recreation? You know, we can go an entire day without thinking about God. And uh, uh, Psalm 10, verse 4 says this, The wicked in his proud countenance does not seek God. God is in none of his thoughts. How do we seek God? Well, he says, or fail to seek him, it's by failing to have him in, in our thoughts. And in contrast to forgetting, the person that God can trust with an increased level of stewardship is the person who has a constant awareness of God's smile of approval or his frown that's upon him. He lives, as Calvin said, quorum Deo, before the face of God. He's constantly thinking in terms of what the Lord uh, wants in his day-by-day dealings. But the wicked in his proud countenance does not seek God. God is in none of his thoughts. In fact, God says that he can be so taken for granted. In verse 17, Moses says that these Israelites could make the mistake of thinking that they did well because they were such good wilderness wanderers and such uh, skilled fighters and planters and builders. You know, God can knock our socks off, blessing us with a financial killing in some market, and we can pat ourselves on the back and think, you know, what incredible prowess we have and not give glory to the lord and so forgetting god is one of the surest ways to being cursed not being blessed psalm 50 verse 22 says now consider this you who forget god lest i tear you in pieces and there be none to deliver now god's patient with us he doesn't tear us in pieces right away and i'm very thankful or i'd be torn apart long ago because i think we have a tendency to forget about god we don't bring him into our decisions when we're walking through the day And God says, I want you to practice the presence, as it were. I want you throughout the day to be remembering me, thinking about me, conscious that I am looking on in the affairs that you're engaged in. Now, there's an opposite. For every put off, there's a put on. And Psalm 10, verse 4 says, the opposite of forgetting God is seeking God. What was Christ's promise in Matthew 6, verse 33? But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. And you'll find prosperity is connected with seeking God over and over again in the scripture. Psalm 34, verse 10, says this, The young lions lack and suffer hunger, but those who seek the Lord shall not lack any good thing. That's an incredible promise. How do we raise the threshold of the prosperity God can bless us with so that we don't lack any good thing? Well, it's by seeking after the Lord. Hosea 6 promises when we pursue the knowledge of the Lord, when we seek him, he will pour forth showers. Ezekiel 34 says the same thing. He promises prosperity and he sums up by saying, I will make them and the places all around my hill a blessing and I will cause showers to come down in their season. There shall be showers of blessing." Not a dribbling of blessing, showers of blessing. In Second Chronicles 31.21, he even provides healing for those who sought the Lord with all their heart. 
Now, I think we tend to be skeptical of promises like that. We live in such a rationalistic age. We, we have a hard time. And I think Israel, even though they weren't in a rationalistic age, they tended to be skeptical as well. And that's why God said in Malachi, test me and see. Try me and see if I will not open up the windows of heaven and pour out such blessing that you will not be able to contain it. He said, test me, try me. In Isaiah chapter 45, he promised prosperity. And then he backed it up by saying, in effect, hey, I created the world. I control the world. I can do exactly what I've promised in your lives. Here's how he worded it. <clears throat> For thus says the Lord who created the heavens, who is God, who formed the earth and made it, who has established it who did not create it in vain, who formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord and there is no other. I have not spoken in secret in the dark place of the earth. I did not say to the seed of Jacob, seek me in vain. You can't seek God in vain. Psalm 9 verse 10 says, For you, Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Now the second key to raising the threshold of, of uh, what God can trust us with is uh, to seek after righteousness. And the verse that I quoted earlier uh, from Christ said the same thing. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Okay? And what did he say after that? And all these things shall be added to you. It's a promise. He's going to add it to us. So it's not just seeking God and his kingdom, but it's seeking his righteousness. And he promises to add, that's raising the threshold. He's going to add to us, and not just a few things. He says, all these things shall be added to you. We're to seek after righteousness. Or as Hebrews words, that we're to pursue holiness. Now, this is really implied in the previous point. You're going to be seeing all of these points are implied in each other. But I think they bear um, special mention. In verse 11, <clears throat> it's not just reading about the judgments and statutes and commandments but he says beware that you do not forget the lord your god by not keeping his commandments his judgments and his statutes which i command you today now <coughs> after and then he says a lest in verse 12 and then he gives a big long parenthesis he ends his parenthesis down in verse 19 he tells you what what the lest is going to be he says if you fail to pursue after holiness here's what's going to happen you're going to be diminished and uh, you may even perish. You're going to lose it all. Now, I want you to notice that he doesn't just tell us to, uh, to obey the Ten Commandments, but also the judgments and statutes. Those are the case laws. Those are the expansion upon the Ten Commandments that give feet to them, that give concrete application to those commandments. Now, there's a lot of people, again, who uh, just they don't believe in following Old Testament law. And uh, uh, unfortunately, I think that they're shortchanging themselves. In fact, even in some reform circles, there are some people who say God does not reward his people. Reward, that's legalism. That's following after works righteousness. It is not. Uh, it is all of grace. But grace is not powerless, and grace does not uh, uh, just leave people where they're at. It changes people. It produces repentance. It produces holiness. It produces responsibility. And part of God's grace is to discipline his people. And part of his grace is that he loves to pour out blessings in the lives of those who honor him. Okay? Who's the first person that you think about in the Old Testament when you think of a person who talked about grace a lot? Well, I think about David. David was a man who was filled with grace, who understood grace. And yet he said in 2 Samuel 22, verse 21... The Lord rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands, he has recompensed me. 
Now, lest you think that David was just, maybe he was speaking that out of turn, and he really shouldn't have said that, God recorded exactly the same words David penned them in Psalm 22, no, excuse me, Psalm 18, verse 20, because God wanted those words to be upon our lips. He wanted them to be our words. The Lord rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands, he has recompensed me. That's a tremendous motivation to be pursuing after righteousness. He's not saying righteousness gains us salvation. He's not saying it gains our favor with the Lord. Just simply saying it's raising the threshold of what God can trust us with. You don't put a $100 bill into a two-year-old's hand. You know, there's maturity. There's got to be growth that's there. That's all that he is saying in that passage. Who in the New Testament is the apostle who is really connected with love and with grace? Well, that's the apostle John. And yet, in fact, the whole book of 1 John is, a, is an epistle that tells us that we need to be pursuing after, after holiness. But he says we can lose our rewards if we stop pursuing after righteousness. He says, look to yourselves that we do not lose those things we work for, but that we may receive a full reward. So how do we avoid loss? And how do we increase the threshold of prosperity that God can trust us with? Pursue after holiness. Ezra 7, 9 through 10 says about Ezra, the good hand of his God was upon him for Ezra had prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord and to do it. That's why God's hand was upon him, prospering him. Now I'm going to read Zephaniah 2, 3 and see if you can hear the first three points of this sermon connected to prosperity. And you can, we'll, we'll move ahead to point C. But uh, you children, see if you can recognize the first three points that we've talked about as I read this verse. Zephaniah 2, verse 3. Seek the Lord, all you meek of the earth, who have upheld his justice. Seek righteousness, seek humility. It may be that you will be hidden in the day of the Lord's anger. Now let's deal with that, that, that third one, seeking after humility. If you turn back to Deuteronomy uh, 8, you're going to see a relationship between prosperity and humility and a lack of prosperity and pride. verse 14 when your heart is lifted up that's an expression of pride and you can sometimes actually feel you know your heart uh, lifting up and it doesn't have to be when anybody else is around you know to pat you on the back maybe you've been crying out to the lord for help on something maybe it's wisdom and you're just saying oh lord i can't do this it's impossible and the lord comes through he gives you wisdom he prospers you And then sometime later, you look back on that and you said, you know, I did pretty good. And you can feel that pride coming up. And it's almost exactly like that expression. The heart is lifted up. It feels good. And God says, boy, you better pound that pride right down and crucify it because that pride is going to get you into trouble. You need to put it under the blood of Christ. You need to humble yourself because if you don't humble yourself, the Lord will humble you. He has to humble you if the threshold of uh, prosperity is going to be increased. He says in verse 16, who fed you in the wilderness with manna, which your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and that he might test you to do you good in the end. Notice that he's still not abandoning that idea of prospering his people, raising that threshold. He says to do you good in the end, but it's at the end. It's not at the beginning. It's only after you've learned your lessons, after you've been humbled and treated as a child. He says something similar in uh, verse 3. He says, so he humbled you allowed you to hunger sometimes he humbles us by bringing difficulties and pain into our lives verse 5 
You should know in your heart that as a man chastens his son, so the Lord your God chastens you. Now, we want our children to prosper. What parent does not? And God wants his children to prosper as well. But he says, you've got to grow up first. You've got to mature. Uh, just like I said earlier, you're not going to give a two-year-old a $100 bill. It might eat the, you know, the, the money instead of spending the money wisely. And in the same way, God is not going to allow us to have prosperity until that threshold is raised, until we're ready to crucify pride and to follow after him. And so the question I have is, not do you have pride, everybody has pride. If you don't, you're probably extra proud. <laughs> you think you don't have pride. Everybody has pride. The question is, are you willing to crucify it when it comes to your attention? When God humbles you, are you willing to respond graciously to God's humbling? When somebody rebukes you in the congregation and says, look, brother, or look, sister, you should not be living in such uh, sin, are you willing to, you're right, and humble yourself before that person and before the Lord. Be willing to crucify uh, your pride. As Zephaniah 2.3 says, seek the Lord, seek righteousness, and seek humility. Point D is very related, and it deals with a sense of dependence and a lack of a sense of dependence. Uh, verse 17 describes what kind of person that God is reluctant to prosper any further than he already has. He says, then you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gained me this wealth. <clears throat> now, just put yourself in a parent's position. Even your children, just pretend that you're parents. And... Um, there is, um, oh, maybe a, a three-year-old that you've been teaching to do something, and the child says, I did it by myself, and you know right well he only did 5%, you did 95%. Now, it may be cute, but you still need to deal with that and say, no, we both did it together, but what you did is wonderful, and I want you to keep working on that because eventually you will do it by yourself. But we just recognize that's a part of immaturity. Now, if that same child grows up, and he's a teenager, and he's invited some of his friends over for uh, dinner. You've got a nice three-course meal, you know, that you've uh, served to these people. And in, you're in the next room. You overhear the son saying, hey, how did you like that meal that I cooked for you? And all he did was peel the potatoes. He didn't really cook the meal at all. You would not think that that was honest or that was why you would discipline that person. And uh, you would not be giving more of the things that that child is failing to appreciate that he's taken for granted. Well, that's the same way that God is uh, doing with us. <clears throat> so this is a, really a huge, uh, a huge factor that we need to uh, think about. In fact, when I was praying earlier, the, the thought had come to me of Mephibosheth. And I think he's just a beautiful example of how we should respond to the Lord in terms of our frailty. He was a frail person. He had been dropped as a baby. His legs had been broken. And he was a cripple the rest of his life, dependent upon other people. He was the grandson of Saul, and he was very concerned that David might kill him because Saul, his granddad, had been chasing after David, had hunted him down, tried to kill him uh, for all of the time that he was uh, in power, pretty much. And what happened is David took compassion upon Mephibosheth. And uh, <coughs> when Mephibosheth... Phibosheth came to him, he said that he would give to him all of Saul's property, all of his servants, and he could eat at his table free for the rest of his life. And Mephibosheth fell down before him. He recognized this is grace, this is pure grace, and he says, 
something to the effect of, you know, why are you looking upon such a dead dog as I to, you know, treat me so graciously? Now, as long as Mephibosheth was recognizing he's undeserving, he's frail, he's needy, and what he's receiving, even the dominion that he was taking with his labors were only enabled by David's graces, David delighted in giving to him. It was great to give to him. But when David later on, and I think it was a mistaken notion, but when he later on thought that Mephibosheth not only did not appreciate what he was doing, but was trying to take over the kingdom, suddenly David lost all motivation to bless Mephibosheth. And that's the way it is with God. As long as we acknowledge, Lord, we are frail, we are dependent upon you, God delights in pouring into our lives far more than, than um, uh, we need, above and beyond that which we could ask or think. Uh, I remember when I was an RA at um, Prairie Bible Institute, <coughs> one kid who really thought he was hot stuff, kid, he was, a, you know, he was in college, college age, <clears throat> but I was just blown away. I've never heard another evangelical talk like this, and I forget now how the subject came up. I remember his response, but it had something to do with, with praying for wisdom on exams and thanking God when we did well on exams. I don't know if maybe I said, you know, after he said he did well on his exam, I said, well, praise the Lord. Anyway, his response was, well, what do you mean? I was the only one who studied. God didn't study this material for me. And we started discussing, and he says, no, I don't thank God for you know, basketball court and all the other things. I'm the one who's doing the work, not God. And I, I looked at him, and I said, you're crazy. The Bible says God made your brain, and at any time, he could make you senile. He could make you forget things on the exam. And anyway, he questioned that, and he had kind of a deistic con conception of, of how God worked. And I said, look, we live and move and have our being in him. Every atom of your body is upheld by the word of his power. Christ said, without me, you can do nothing. And it just didn't get through to him. But when we have that kind of an attitude, we are failing to acknowledge God. God says, hey, if that's the way you're going to be, I'll let you work on your own and see how you like it. Uh, we are not invincible financially, but sometimes we act like we are. And we are not invincible physically, but sometimes we act like we are. And we need to acknowledge before the Lord, Lord, I am dependent. And I sense my dependence. I am unworthy. You are so gracious in pouring out upon such a dead dog as I the blessings you have given. Fifth factor is that we need to reject polytheistic pluralism. Verses 18 through 19. <clears throat> you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth, that he may establish his covenant, which he swore to your fathers, as it is this day. Then it shall be... If you by any means forget the Lord your God and follow other gods and serve them and worship them, then he goes on to say that if they do that, he'll diminish and, uh, them and they will perish. Now, you might think that you don't follow other gods, let alone serve them and worship them. But I want you to keep in mind that the Apostle John addressed even regenerate Jewish Christians in 1 John chapter 5, and he said this, Little children, keep yourselves from idols. That maybe was shocking to a Jew to hear, keep yourselves from idols. What are you talking about? You know, ever since the Babylonian captivity, we've kept ourselves from idols. We've never bowed down to any wood idol, any, any silver idol or anything like that. Uh, I don't think any Jew probably in Christ's day would say, oh, sure, I, I worship other gods. I, I serve uh, other idols. And yet, John says, you do. You are subject to falling down to idols. Oz Guinness, Guinness in his book, um, No God But God, 
points out that our hearts are idol factories and that one of the most pervasive sins of the evangelical church today is polytheism, looking to other authorities and idolatry. Um, here's how Schlossberg defines idolatry. Any substitution of what is created for the creator. A political party that you say is above, above criticism, that cannot be challenged, can become an idol. Psychology can become an idol. Uh, David Wells speaks of even a lust for academic respectability as being an idol. Um, uh, uh, he spoke about the demonization of the, um, of the ministry. A demon degree is a doctor of ministry degree. But he was talking about how pastors, it's just like, it's just lust to be, uh, you know, respectable in the eyes of people. And so uh, they've got to have these degrees behind their name, the demonization of um, the ministry. But anyway, for purposes of this sermon, we're only going to look at one. This chapter indicates we can follow other gods because money has become an idol. Now, how is that possible? Christ said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What has captured your heart? That is your God. Danger that this chapter warns us again is we can become so preoccupied with wealth that uh, we fail to see that that wealth was intended to help us advance his covenant if you look at verse 18 in the middle there it says he gives he who gives you power to get wealth that he may establish his covenant he gives you wealth that he may establish his covenant he says if you're not if you're not seeking first his kingdom with all of the things that he gives to you why should he bother giving you any more things the purpose of the wealth is so that you can be a, a, a better steward of advancing the cause of his covenant uh, in this world. <clears throat> I think the last point is perhaps as strong an indication as any that uh, we have other gods. Uh, when we fear men more than we fear God, we are polytheistic because reverence and fear is at the very heart of any religion. Okay? If you want to increase the threshold of prosperity that God can trust you with, develop the fear of the Lord. In fact, I'd recommend that you buy the book and read it and digest it, the book by Ed Welch called When People Are Big and God is Small. And he deals, with, he shows basically how all six of these points are uh, various facets of the same, same problem. Now, he doesn't deal with Deuteronomy. He doesn't deal with these six points. But in essence, that... What he goes about, what he does is he, he shows us how, in tangible ways, how we can put off the fear of man, which grips our hearts, and how we can put on the fear of the Lord. Because I tell you, if, if God adds things into your life and you don't have the fear of the Lord, those things are going to become a snare to you instead of a blessing. They'll be a snare. So how do we develop the fear of the Lord? Uh, I'd recommend that you read that, that book. I do want to at least deal with how there's a connection between the fear of the Lord and prosperity. If the other five points that we went through are meaningless to you, well, it's probably because you don't believe in God's sanctions in history. Sanction is either a curse or a blessing. It's either a removal of God's prosperity or a giving of God's prosperity. It's God's working in blessing or cursing in, in history. And the last two verses here are really the culmination of his whole argument. And uh, he says, if we fail to have these things, this is what's going to happen. He says, I testify, very last phrase of verse 19, I testify against you this day that you shall surely perish as the nations which the Lord destroys before you 
so you shall perish because you would not be obedient to the voice of the Lord your God. Now, there are threats made by God and there are threats made by man. Which do you fear more? There are promises made by God and there are promises made by man. Which do you value and to believe in more? A very simple concept, and yet it's profound enough. There have been various books that have been written on it. If you are to be entrusted with more health, more wealth, more wisdom, more responsibility, etc., 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 then you need to develop the fear of the Lord. Here's what Proverbs 22, verse 4 says. By humility and the fear of the Lord are riches and honor and life. Have you noticed on the different scriptures I've been quoting how they interlink all six points uh, together? Here's two of the points. By humility and the fear of the Lord are riches and honor and life. And the reason that the scripture does that is that these are just basically various facets, different windows of looking at the same issue of a God-centeredness, having a steward's heart. That's basically what it's uh, dealing with. And so if you keep these six points as your life goals, God is going to bless you with the character that can raise that threshold. We're not talking about the skills here. Those are other passages but having a character where God can trust you with more. Seek God and his purposes. Seek to be holy and don't compromise. Seek humility. Recognize your frailty and your need of God. Don't raise anything in creation to a status of God and develop the fear of the Lord. Amen. Father God, we thank you for this warning that you have given in Deuteronomy chapter 8. And I know my own heart needs that warning. It's so easy for us to depend upon our own strength and to forget about you and to uh, lack that sense, that constant sense of your presence, of your approval or disapproval. And I pray, O Lord, that you would teach us to live before your face, to seek you with all of our heart, to fear you. Uh, Father, may uh, the fear of the Lord be such an evident part of this congregation, Father, that the differences could be plainly seen. We love you. It is our desire uh, even though we have those in your kingdom to seek your righteousness and to advance the glory of your name throughout the earth. And I pray that you would bless this, your people, with increased resources, increased prosperity, that they may have that which, with which they can uh, uh, fund the kingdom purposes, uh, fund uh, even their uh, children's inheritance and uh, the, the spreading of your kingdom even into their grandchildren's lives. We just uh, thank and bless you, Father, in Christ's name. Amen.